Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we are joined by the Chief Executive of the National Emergencies Trust, Vari Sharp, and she's going to discuss the charity's first two years in action. Later on in the show we'll also be bringing you our Good News Bulletin. After more than a year of living in the shadow of an unprecedented global crisis, you might not necessarily remember that 2017, for the UK at least, was a year filled with tragedies and emergencies. There were three terrorist attacks in London, including the Westminster attack in which six people died and 50 people were injured. The country was rocked by the Manchester Arena bombing in May, and less than a month later the Grenfell Tower fire claimed the lives of at least 72 people the worst UK residential fire since the Second World War. In the autumn of the same year, severe flooding gripped the county of Lancashire, damaging in the region of 900 homes. Following each of these events, charities and community groups across the country sprang into action to support those affected by each of these crises. At the same time, the British public responded with incredible generosity, donating millions of pounds to survivors and the families of victims. But this created a new set of problems. Moved to give, but unsure of who to offer their support to in the wake of the incidents, thousands of private individuals set up online fundraising pages on Just Giving and other online fundraising platforms and suddenly found themselves responsible for vast sums of money, but with no idea how to get it to the people it was intended for. One appeal by a local school teacher raised more than £800,000 on Just Giving the day after the Grenfell Tower, for example. So in June 2017... Sarah Miller, who is a freelance communications consultant and the former head of press and public affairs at the Charity Commission, she wrote a blog for Third Sector, arguing that the string of emergencies demonstrated the need for the sector to change its responses to large-scale crises. She argued that the model for the kind of collaboration that was needed already existed, and it had been operating effectively for more than 50 years. The Disasters Emergency Committee ensures that a joint fundraising appeal between major aid agencies is launched quickly after any international disaster, with built-in PR and advertising, and it can ensure that funds are appropriately divided among the charities according to their capabilities on the ground, Miller wrote. She called for this model to be replicated to create a domestic version of the DEC. Arguing that when it came to local emergencies, such as the Grenfell Tower fire, the sector needed to know that an emergency appeal could be launched within minutes and get much-needed funds not just to larger charities, but to the smallest and the most local organisations on the ground. Miller wrote, We have to act smarter and quicker. Having a permanent domestic DEC secretariat would mean an appeal could be launched with a dedicated phone line and website, and funds would flow through a central point for distribution to a wide range of local charities as soon as possible. And what this would do would be to ensure that the public's generosity would be harnessed quickly and bolster public trust that their donation would be used effectively. The idea was one that gained momentum in the sector, and in November 2019, the National Emergencies Trust was officially launched by the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. Although the trust was inspired by the DEC, it is slightly different in its structure. So the DEC comprises a group of membership organisations who respond jointly to international emergencies. The NEC doesn't have member charities, but has partnerships with numerous charities across the country, and was designed to be able to partner with specialist and local charities in the event of a disaster to ensure that local knowledge and local faces were involved in distributing money to those affected. But, like the DEC, the NET works closely with broadcasters and national press so that it can raise awareness of its appeals quickly, and works with fundraising platforms to direct members of the public wanting to set up fundraising pages to channel the money they raise into the central NET pot. Of course, 
Then, less than six months after the charity launched, the coronavirus pandemic swept the globe. In the UK, national lockdowns forced communities across the country into crisis and brought many charity fundraising activities to an abrupt halt, just as the need for those charity services went through the roof. So on the 18th of March 2020, the National Emergencies Trust launched its first appeal to raise funds for local charities and grassroots organisations supporting people affected by the pandemic. The appeal has now raised more than £98 million, which has been distributed to more than 13,000 projects working to alleviate the effects of the pandemic. Those figures are from an interim impact report produced by the charity. I think they have changed now. I think I think we're talking even more uh, projects helped and even more money raised. So to find out more about the charity's first two years, we're joined by Mari Sharp, the Chief Executive of the National Emergencies Trust. Hi, Vari. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I am good, thank you. It's lovely to be here. Thank you, Emily. It's great to have you. Um, so you will have been in the Chief Executive Post, I think, at the National Emergencies Trust for, for how long now? I think you were announced, your appointment was announced in November last year. Was it something like that? Yes, November, September. Who knows? 2020 is a blur, isn't it? Oh, yeah. What does time mean anymore? <laughs> Late 2020. Late 2020, you were announced. So how long have you actually been, been in the role actively? So I was the first full-time employee of the National Emergencies Trust in February 2019. And I spent the year, just me full time actually, um, until November when uh, I was joined by John Herriman, um, building the trust. So that was really, you know, getting to know what the issues were and what the, the strategy would look like and build the mission, the infrastructure, the operating model and get us to a point where we could actually respond to an emergency. And you are now in the top job, of course. So to start off, kind of what impact would you say the NET has had since it was set up and launched? Well, uh, well, we've spent the, the vast majority of our first few years of life uh, uh, of the charity uh, running our first ever appeal, the coronavirus appeal, which launched in on the 18th of March last year. So to date, the appeal has enabled nearly 14,000 incredible charities and, and groups of all shapes and sizes to make a difference to people's lives and to do that really, really quickly. Uh, and importantly, um, what we really wanted to do was to be that flexible and open-minded funder uh, so we tried to ensure that those 14,000 could make a difference in the way that they thought was best for their community. So, for example, um, grants have helped charities to cover core costs to keep their services going throughout COVID. Uh, it's allowed individuals to mobilise mutual aid groups for their neighbours. We've been able to launch really important new services. So you might have seen Ubele's brilliant Bayo initiative last last week. Um, supporting that's been a, an absolute highlight for us or the uh, the Bernardo's Bolo helpline for black and Asian and minority ethnic groups um, but projects they've also been able to transform the way that they operate during lockdown our smallest grant was actually 30 pounds and that was to enable someone to buy a headset so that they could work remotely I should say our average grant is about five thousand pounds we weren't <laughs> We weren't going around with £10 notes, but uh, it's just great to see the scale of, of the need there. So as far as our impact goes, um, you can see the impact of all of these small charities and it's fantastic and it's agile and it's hyper-local. Um, so our own impact has actually been enabling that depth and that diversity of impact, often at breakneck speed and in every corner of the UK. In fact, and I'll finish it here, uh, by day five uh, of our appeal, We've got funds available on every street, village, city uh, in the UK, and we were able to continue to top those up. So that speed and that agility combined with, with that lived experience and that local experience was really important for us. 
that's kind of like everything it was supposed to be from that sort of provocation about having that local DEC being able to react quickly, being able to get those vital fronts straight to the front line. How fantastic is that? We're, we're so proud of it. Fast and fair is what we aimed for. And uh, I think we achieved that. And we've got an external evaluation going on at the moment to hopefully uh, uh, validate what we've done. Amazing. And yeah, obviously, the, the, the big appeal you've been running has been the coronavirus appeal. And, you know, it's, it's had a huge impact on it, on everybody's lives and on you know, the level of need within the sector and, and, and for those the sector works with. But how has COVID actually affected the charity's early life itself? So we're in an interesting position in that we're, we're not building back better after COVID. Um, we've been building ourselves as a charity through COVID uh, and also from COVID. So in many ways, I think it means that we've grown into a, a better two-year-old uh, and much faster than we might have, have otherwise done so. So for example, um, when COVID forced the world to work from home, we only had a staff of two um, and we hadn't had the time to think about setting up an office so now we know what we're capable of achieving without one. So we have this, this tiny collaboration space instead, and it's much better for our core costs, of course. Uh, and it also means that we can be a, an inclusive employer with uh, people joining us from all over the country. Uh, I also think COVID made us much more agile, uh, which is strange to say, because I think we're probably one of the most agile charities out there because of our size, um, because of our remote working, and because we re- the nature of what we do, we respond to emergencies. Um, but we, we've experienced how, how mountains can be moved with that open dialogue, the, the flexible funding, but really importantly, that mutual trust between charities, which it doesn't work without that trust. So as an example, uh, we partnered with Disability Action Northern Ireland to ensure funds reach people with disabilities who were disproportionately affected by lockdown restrictions. And because they couldn't offer uh, nationwide coverage, which was vital for us, we worked with them to rapidly create a, a UK consortium of disabled people-led organisations, which has had this incredible effect, uh, awarding grants to pe- uh, projects all across the UK. Um, and also because the, the pandemic has affected everyone uh, at a really early point in our life as a charity, it gave us that chance to work with a, a whole range of incredible organisations like the consortium who have also brought their lived experience to the table. So we've made far more friends than we otherwise would have as a two-year-old. Absolutely. And I mean, it's been a very, very busy life for a two-year-old organisation. Um, for sure, you've obviously had to to grow rapidly. You've had to react at an immense pace. With with being a very young organisation, setting the pandemic aside, if indeed you can do that, what what would you say have been, you know, the other really big challenges around having to, to grow and adapt in that kind of really rapid way? This this one is easy to answer. Um, <laughs> we, went, we went from two um, to nearly 200 people uh, during the coronavirus appeal in a matter of weeks. Um, so building, it's not just about the onboarding process and bringing people in and, and making them useful team members. It's building that culture as you go and not to mention doing it remotely. So I'm going to highlight some some brilliant people that came came across uh, came across our desk that, that came to join us Um we had lots of corporate supporters who gave us volunteers. They gave us secondees. We had more people than we could possibly harness the energy of. So we had to be careful about who we took on uh, to build the, the right culture and bring the right skill sets in. But we had a retired chief risk officer from the Bank of England. Um, he'd been on a waiting list to give out food parcels on the back of his bicycle, didn't make it to the front of the list, so decided he wanted to use his decades of experience to help the sector in a different way and became this just incredible team member. We had a a really skilled data scientist uh, from a major insurer 
who helped us to create our allocation formula, but then also to uh, to adapt it as the landscape changed as, as COVID progressed. Um, and, and finally, we had a couple of paralegals who were seconded from a, a law firm in London. Um, they weren't only great team members, but they saved us a fortune in legal fees. Um, and it was really important to us because we were trying to keep our, our core costs below the 3% mark. So the big challenge was just harnessing everyone's enthusiasm. Um, and it really did feel sort of hand to mouth at times, as you can imagine. But actually, I had a chance to meet them recently and I hadn't appreciated the impact that it had on their lives and how it supported them during COVID when they were isolated from their loved ones and uh, sort of helping them with their their mental health and their experience. Now that, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, and, and does sound like just an incredible challenge to to have that many people just suddenly in your orbit in one go as well, as much as anything. Um, in terms of that, those issues around allocation, you know, there have been some criticisms in the past about how the trust has ensured that its funding was made available to marginalised groups. How have you addressed this, and how do you plan to continue working on this in the future? Um, I mean, our number one priority is equitable distribution. We've we've absolutely achieved it. Uh, our founding mission was to support people fast and fair when the worst happens. So, so pre-COVID and, and based on previous emergencies, we'd assumed that this would look like making the right choices when financial gifts were given to individuals who were affected by localized emergencies. Think floods and fires and terror attacks. Um, but as it transpired, of course, during the, the, the COVID appeal, it was about being equitable. Was It was about making sure that we understood how the pandemic was affecting different groups in different ways and ensuring that our, our distribution strategy was, was mindful of that. So as we went on quite a journey in that regard, as I think everyone did at the time in terms of uh, evolving our approach uh, as new data and new needs came to light. But in the early weeks and months, the community foundations, they did a, an incredible job helping us to get financial support to street level right across the UK. And I, I mentioned previously how quickly they were able to do that. But through May and June, we actually conducted a, a detailed audit of our early grants data to understand uh, who funds were, were benefiting and how. And we also reviewed the wider sector and where the wider sector was giving them what the needs arising were likely to be and also what the government were doing and where they were putting their funding. So on the 1st of July, we launched the, the Global Majority Fund with Comic Relief, um, and that was uh, to target additional support towards Black, Asian and minority ethnic groups, and really importantly, through um, Black, Asian, minority-led groups, uh, and that was the key here. And then throughout August and September, we actually launched nine other charity partnerships uh, with national charities and also with charity consortia, like the, the, the disability consortia that I mentioned earlier. Um, and these were to, to target other needs. So, for example, we supported shelter to support the homeless and those at increasing risk of homelessness. And our audit flagged uh, as a, a significant growing issue once the government support packages came to a close. Uh, the LGBT plus consortia, uh, whose communities were disproportionately affected by COVID, especially where mental health was concerned. The Refugee Council, these are communities who were already on the, the margins of society and they were now isolated more than ever. So... It's been quite a journey to achieve equitable distribution, but but we got there um, and we we did it really quickly. So um, it's I would say distribution of funds is is eighty percent of our focus during an appeal. The other twenty percent is it's fundraising, it's governance, it's looking after the team. 
I think I was actually going to mention the Comic Relief Fund there because I recently um, interviewed their chief executive for uh, the magazine as well. And I think something that I've really loved seeing from grant makers is is that that ability and that willingness to become flexible over the pandemic. And and we've seen um, so many big grant makers not only doing really really innovative things to make sure that the money is going to the right places. So Comic Relief you know, worked with you and turned its gaze inwards and started, you know, they distributed more locally um, in the UK this year than I think probably ever before um, to reach those people working on the front line. So those kind of evolutions from grant makers have been amazing. But what else was really striking to me there was the sheer number of organisations you have worked with across this. And I think that collaborative piece has been such an important part of the way that so many in the sector, whether they are frontline organisations or whether they are grant makers, have you know adapted, and I, I'm really hoping that that collaborative piece is something that we're going to see you know even more of in the future, and, and that working together. Um, for you, I mean, I think there is there's so much to be proud of in what the, the you know you've achieved in the last kind of eighteen months or so. What would you say you are proudest of? I'm not going to say the coronavirus appeal because you'd expect it, wouldn't you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but outside of the appeal, and of course, I'm incredibly proud of not just what we've achieved, but what the team have achieved coming together. Um, it's quite amazing to see something grow out of, of nothing apart from an idea and issues. Um, but outside of that, I'm really proud of the work that we've done and that we're continuing to do to really understand the needs of emergency survivors. So as we were building the National Emergencies Trust, we met with about 120 survivors and responders to emergencies, going all the way back to Hillsborough. And the job there, and this was the first thing I did before I built the policies and the operating model, this was all about understanding what the need was. And the same issues came up at Hillsborough, at Manchester Arena and at Grenfell. And there's about 40 of them. They're big issues and they need to be tackled. So it's our job to tackle those issues to make sure that survivors of future emergencies have a smoother journey. So, for example, um, we were made aware that accepting financial assistance from a, a charity could mean uh, people forfeiting state benefits that they received, which was, was clearly it wasn't a just approach. So we secured an amendment to the social security regulations through the Department of, of Welsh, Wealth and Pensions to introduce a disregard for anyone in receipt of state benefits um, who accepts financial support from the National Emergencies Trust. And we did the same again through the Ministry of Justice for legal aid so that your access to legal aid wasn't restricted um, if you were in receipt of funds. And that was um, two pieces of legislation that we changed in the early days. And that was just one of the, the 40 issues. I'll mention one more because it's one that really uh, it always lands as an example of why, why do we exist? What, what's the point of the National Emergencies Trust? And it was insight from survivors. Um, these are people that are suffering extreme trauma and they're being asked to fill in um, multiple forms. And as you fill in a form, you retell your story, you relive your story. So what we've done is the, the existence of the National Emergencies Trust reduces the amount of forms people fill in because we we eventually will become that one trusted place to give. That's our, that's our aim, to be the one point of contact for, for survivors. And of course, there'll always be smaller uh, charities around as well on the peripheries. But what we're doing is we're, we're working on a survivors app that won't just be that one point of contact, but it will ease the pressure of filling in forms. It will make it as easy as it possibly can. And also the ability to see where you are in the process. So you're not sat there wondering, do I need to upload anything? Do I need to give more information? Um, when, when will I hear back? Uh, just to make that process as, as smooth as possible. 
That sounds brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like such a, an, a, an innovative idea. And, and yeah, it makes a lot of sense with, with kind of a lot of yeah the complaints you hear from people. Um, so yeah, so looking forward to the forward to the future of the charity. Obviously, you kind of you've got your first appeal under your belt, um, and uh, you're developing this app. What else are your plans for the future? Well, we were four months old when we launched the appeal. We actually <laughs> we officially launched the charity um, on the the seventh of November, twenty nineteen. Um, once we thought if something happens tomorrow, we'll be ready. And actually that night it rained really hard and we went into pre-activation for a, for a flood. Um, so we've still got that long to-do list from the early days, including that, that uh, consultation phase we went through with the survivors to continue to, to op- optimize that experience and make sure we continue to learn from the past. We, we now see ourselves as owning that corporate memory from the past and it's now our responsibility to do something about it. But beyond that, that list of uh, actions that we've got, um, digital innovation is a real focus for us. Um, everything from how we share data um, to ensure transparency and build trust to how we harness digital channels to launch appeals as quickly as possible. Um, our patrons, BT and the NatWest Group, have been incredible partners um, to us in sharing their, their digital wisdom. Um, and we're really looking forward to announcing some digital innovation initiatives later this month so we might come back to you on that excellent keep us posted we will do i mean another big activity is putting our team because we've got a a relatively new team um, of nine full-time employees and some newer trustees as well putting them through their paces we we exercise on a regular basis um, for every possible scenario and it's really realistic and we bring all of our patrons and partners everyone from so15 counter-terrorism to the norfolk flood forum always a different region, always a different emergency uh, and all the nuances that go with it. So keeping everyone on their toes and then just continuing to to, to make friends before we need them. Um, it's a really important thing for us. I think we're unique as a charity and there will be other ones out there in that we're one of the only charities that can't operate without other charities. If other charities didn't exist, we, we, we would be useless. It's a really interesting way to put it. That makes a lot of sense. Well, and what a lot you've achieved in that time. And I think it it's just, it's an extraordinary story and I'm sure that there are, well, there's there's going to be no shortage of things in the future, I'm sure. And it's going to be really, really exciting to see you kind of continuing to grow in your capabilities as an organisation at a time when you are going to be, I'm sure, very, very needed in the future as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Rebecca. So each week, as ever, we are bringing you our Good News Bulletin, a positive or a quirky story that we've spotted in the sector. First up, Rebecca, what do you have for us this week? So I've got a guy named Simon Aylett. Uh, He's 59 from Sussex. And on Saturday, uh, so 30th of October, just gone, he finished a 4,000 mile cycle ride um, around the coast of Great Britain. Um, so he basically just did all the little inny outy bits, and it turns out that adds up to about four thousand miles. Um, and he raised twenty seven thousand pounds for the Royal Marsden Cancer Charity. That's a lot of miles. That's a that's a whole lot of miles. It's a whole lot of miles. So he set off in May. Wow. He started this journey <laughs> in May. He left his home in Rye, um, and he completed the challenge on an e bike with a homemade miniature caravan attached, um, and spent seventy two days in the saddle. Um, this homemade miniature caravan, by the way, I will absolutely pop a link in the story on our website uh, so you can see it because it's not it's not small like it is it it is like the size of like a pop-up tent but it's like solid caravan you know 
goes on the back of a bike. So like, not only was he cycling 4,000 miles, but he was doing it with this, with, with a caravan attached. You see, you said miniature caravan and I immediately thought like a Sylvanian family size caravan. <laughs> <laughs> you know, tiny, tiny, small, but no, genuinely something, something to sleep in. Wow. Yes. Something that he could curl up and sleep in. Um, and uh, yeah, like it's, it, it's, it's very impressive. So there was one, um, we were talking about this when it came into the office. There was one um, a couple of years ago where a lady was raising money cycling around with like a little pod with two miniature Shetland ponies in, in the back of her little pod and she she goes cycling with that it was bigger than that so it's bigger than something used to transport two shetland ponies yeah it was it was uh, quite impressive so uh yeah he ended up back in rye on saturday and he celebrated with his family and friends in the pub um so simon was actually diagnosed with prostate cancer in 2012 and he was told in 2017 that the cancer had spread and he only had 12 months of good health left so he was determined to make the most of his time uh, he completed his first e-bike challenge in the summer of 2018 which was a 2000 mile cycle from rye to syracuse in sicily and again raised thousands for charity and by 2019 he'd become very unwell with his treatment um it, which included surgery chemotherapy radiotherapy and hormonal therapies and and it very much seemed that his cancer was resistant to treatment. Um, but in 2020, he was accepted onto a phase one clinical trial at the Royal Marsden's Oak Drug Development Unit, um, which is funded by the Royal Marsden Cancer Charity. The drug is currently working well for Simon, and it looks like he is sort of making a return to some kind of good health and obviously has been well enough to cycle 4,000 miles around the coast of 4, Britain. 4,000 miles? Right. Um, so earlier this year, yeah, he decided it was time to get back on his bike. And uh, yeah, he's raised money for the charity that has uh, paid for this drug. So yeah, amazing job, Simon. Uh, congratulations. A well-earned pint, I would say. A very well-earned pint. Absolutely. So what have you got for us uh, today, Emily? It's short and sweet. Um, My short and sweet piece of good news is that record numbers of people joined the National Trust over the summer. Woo! Woo (laughs) Woohoo! The charity shared new figures ahead of its annual general meeting. And uh, although it did suspend recruitment of its members during the pandemic, which resulted in a 1% drop in memberships, new subscriptions to the Trust broke records in the summer of 2021. 159,732 people signed up for a National Trust membership in August this year, the third highest ever month of subscriptions for the charity. And in October, a member joined the National Trust once every 23 seconds. That is amazing. Pretty decent. Yeah. So of course, the National Trust has had quite a lot of flack in the press over the last year. And I was really, really heartened by this to just see that rather than headlines, you know, warning that the charity was going to lose members over issues such as its colonialism and its slavery report, which we have previously discussed on this podcast. Rather than people being turned away, they are signing up en masse to support this vital work. And a new member every 23 seconds is a pretty incredible benchmark to beat. Imagine if we sold a new subscription every 23 seconds. That would be pretty great. That would be nice. That would be great. Yeah, if anybody wants to help us take on that challenge, you you know what to do. Please do. Please. Yes. We'll be friends for life. (laughs) Um, and I just, I think what I love about this story as well, apart from just the incredible, the incredible stat is that it, it's kind of, you know, 
exposes the coverage that they've had in the Telegraph and the Daily Mail and others for the nonsense that it is, right? That there's this idea that by talking about the history of their buildings, somehow the National Trust is undermining what members want or disregarding them. And clearly, that isn't true if they are attracting more members through doing this um, and, you know, and and not seeing like a, a massive drop off. So it's really positive. Yeah, it is. It is excellent news. And so with that upbeat note, we'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, The Third Sector Podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. Thank you to our guest, Vari Sharp, and to our producer, Lindsay Riley, at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week. <laughs>